0: Good morning. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, Pastor Mike and I have a little history. I just want to share it with you. Uh, we went to school together and um, it's uh, we were in the doctoral program together at Gordon-Conwell in Charlotte, North Carolina and uh, we became friends from that. And so to be able to kind of connect and reconnect is is really a joy for me. Uh, If you haven't all figured it out, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. Uh, Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I guess you thought I'm from Macon. (laughs) Actually, that's a funny story. Um, My grandfather's family came from Russia and landed in, of all places, Macon, Georgia. My grandfather was actually born in Macon, Georgia. Their original name was Freedman, and uh, they saw in town there was a Freeman's General Store and decided if they were going to be American, they needed an American name, so they adopted the name Freeman from that, and so that's where my name comes from. It comes from Macon, Georgia. (laughs) Let me share a little story with you before we begin. Uh, This story about a man who had scoped out a house and decided that this was the house that he wanted to rob and he was in the process of robbing this house it was dark he was getting all the loot into his sack and then suddenly in the quiet he heard this sound Jesus is going to get you just above a whisper and he just stopped and he looked around he couldn't see anything and then he hears it again A little louder. Jesus is going to get you. Now he's thinking that there's something wrong with him. He's going crazy. He's hearing voices. And sure enough, in another part of the room, he hears it, and it's even louder. Jesus is going to get you. So now he's thinking he picked a haunted house to rob. And uh, (laughs) he was starting to get pretty scared. And then he remembered he had a cigarette lighter in his pocket. So he flicked the lighter on, it lit up the room, and in the far corner of the room, sitting on a bookshelf, was this big old parrot. And the parrot looked at him and says, Jesus is going to get you. And he just laughed, kind of exhaled a little bit. He says, man, Polly, I thought you were a ghost. And the parrot looked at him and said, my name's not Polly, it's Moses. He said, Moses, what kind of person names their parrot Moses? He said, the same person that named their Rottweiler Jesus. Get him, Jesus. (laughs) And that actually has nothing to do with what I'm going to share with you this morning. But I like telling that story. It's good to laugh, isn't it? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. But let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your great love for us. Thank you that even while we were yet sinners, our Messiah died that we might have eternal life. We thank you for that great love, for that great sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that your spirit would fill us to the full. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word, that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. That we might take this word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives, and we will give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Usually when I say, turn to Leviticus, I get this funny look. And the look is, if you've ever tried to read the Bible from cover to cover, how many of you have ever tried doing that? Genesis is an easy book to read through. It's a lot of good stories, Exodus, story of Moses, it's easier to read, and then you come to the tabernacle and you start seeing the redundancies, and then you hit this brick wall called Leviticus. Leviticus with all of the redundancies and all the different sacrifices, but within the book of Leviticus are some wonderful nuggets, uh, especially in this passage in the 23rd chapter. The Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God, amen? So even the book of Leviticus should be a book that we should get much out of. So we're going to look at the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, and it is called the Feast of Israel. It is, in essence, God's prophetic calendar if you want to know how god is dealing with humanity and will in the future deal with humanity leviticus 23 will tell you and it's made up of seven feasts four in the spring three in the fall the spring feasts have already been uh, fulfilled through jesus first coming the fall feasts will be fulfilled at his second coming so let's kind of give you kind of a flyover of this beginning in verse 4 These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation You shall not do any laborious work, but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So in traditional Judaism today, there is one feast called Passover, eight days. But it's actually two different feasts. Passover is a one-day feast, and it's a picture of redemption by the blood of the Lamb. At the first Passover, the children of Israel were redeemed from slavery in Egypt because the last plague was coming, the death of the firstborn. And Moses told the Israelites, if you place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your houses, when the angel of death, the destroyer, came, if he saw the blood on that doorframe of the house, what would he do? He would pass over that house, and that's where we get the name Passover. So that's a one-day feast, redemption. Picture of salvation by the blood of the Lamb. And only those houses that personally applied the blood to the door frames of their houses, to the doorposts of their houses would be saved from that last plague. No one got saved simply because they were Israelites. They had to personally apply the blood. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven day feast, is a picture of sinlessness. Leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. So the fact that We celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a picture of sinlessness. In order for Jesus to be the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, He had to be without sin. Amen? So those are the first two feasts. The third feast happens at the same weekend. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the to the priest he shall wave the sheaf before the lord for you to be accepted on the day after the sabbath the priest shall wave it so this feast takes place on the day after the passover sabbath and it's called the feast of first fruits now if we follow church tradition believe that jesus died on passover i believe passover would have been thursday night to Friday and he died on Friday what we commonly call good friday then the sabbath would have been friday night to saturday night the day after the sabbath would have been sunday did anything unusual happen on the sunday after jesus died on friday he rose it was the resurrection and so paul writes in 1 corinthians christ the first fruits of the dead equating the feast of first fruits with the resurrection and the early church always celebrated the resurrection of the Lord on the day after the Passover Sabbath until the 4th century. And in the 4th century, in the year 325 A.D., a council uh, that was brought forth by Constantine, the emperor of Rome, who was purported to be a Christian, I have my questions about that, but who... uh, was really very anti-Semitic, decided that he didn't want the most important day of Christianity, the resurrection of the Lord, to be connected in any way to the Jewish Passover. And so what he said was it would be celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon of the spring, called the Paschal Full Moon, and it would be named after the Babylonian goddess of fertility, whose name was Ishtar. That's where Easter Sunday gets its origin from, and if you wonder where the Easter bunny comes from, why, if you look at a card store and you want to get a card for Easter, you'll have pictures of chicks and geese, but not too much about the resurrection. It's all part of Ishtar worship that was incorporated into the celebration of the resurrection. Now, typically, probably nine out of ten times, Easter Sunday will be on the day after the Passover Sabbath, and this coming year is no exception. Every once in a while, you'll notice that Easter Sunday is early, Passover is late, so in essence, we remember his resurrection before we remember his death. A little backwards. I'm not telling you to stop celebrating Easter, that's not what this is about. Just so you could get an idea where, where these things come from, and what the point of it was. The resurrection is connected with the Feast of fruits. And uh, typically, uh, the early church celebrated it that way. So these three feasts are all connected with Passover. Then the next feast uh, takes place seven Sabbaths after. So turn to verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. So this is, uh, in Hebrew, Shavuot, it's the Feast of Weeks. It's celebrated, uh, connected with seven Sabbaths after uh, Passover. And it actually means the Feast of Sevens. But I want you to listen to this. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So in 50, the word 50 in Greek is Pentecost. So this is the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, and we celebrate it as the fulfillment of the birth of the church when Peter preached his Pentecost message to Israel under the power of the Holy Spirit. What happened? 3,000 souls were saved, and that was generally considered to be the birth of the body of Messiah, the birth of believers, the birth of the church. And so all of those feast days, four of them, have all been fulfilled at his first coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church. We are now in what's called the harvest time. The harvest time equates to what is commonly called the church age, and this will end with the next prophetic event, which is the next feast in verse 23. So turn to it now. Uh, This is verse 23 of Leviticus 23. And we read this. When you, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first of the month you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. There's not a lot written here. We know that it is, uh, it's going to be a Sabbath rest. We know that it's going to be remembered and it's equated to the blowing of the trumpet or the ram's horn, the shofar. And so uh, the ancient rabbis had a hard time with this because it didn't seem to point to, any, to anything that happened prior to this. The book of Leviticus is part of the five books of Moses, commonly called the Torah, and it was written long before any of any of uh, events that the rabbis thought this might pertain to happen so the rabbis began saying it must be looking toward the future and the closest thing they could come up with was the battle of jericho if you remember the story in the book of joshua the children of israel marched around the city of jericho seven times and after the seventh time what did they do they blew the trumpet and as we sing that that old hymn and the walls came a-tumbling down They were on the right track, but they didn't go far enough in the future. And The reason they didn't go far enough into the future is because they didn't have the New Testament yet. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to look at what I believe is the Feast of Trumpets, commonly called the rapture of the church, and thank you, brother, for singing about it. It was a good segue into the message. And so what we're going to look at is this Incredible event called the rapture of the church. And just to give you a little background, this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the book of Acts chapter 17, it says that Paul spent three Sabbaths with this congregation of believers. Three Sabbaths. Maybe three full weeks, maybe two weeks and three weekends. We don't really know, but he didn't spend a lot of time, but he taught about this event. And in the first teaching of this event, a a misunderstanding happened that he felt he needed to correct. The misunderstanding was this, that when Jesus returned, the bridegroom returning for the bride, that this event would only be for believers alive at the time it happened. And so people, as their loved ones died, and Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians some 35 years after Jesus died, believers began dying. So what happened to those believers? Well, it was commonly believed that they would miss out on this event. Jesus would return, and only those alive would be part of it. And so Paul needed to correct that, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Paul's account of the Feast of Trumpets, just to give you a little context, present day background, it's commonly uh, celebrated in traditional Judaism as the Jewish New Year, called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Now, I want you to notice that it said in the seventh month on the first of the month. In the biblical calendar, the first month of the year is in the springtime. That will be when Passover is celebrated but Jewish New Year is celebrated in the fall. And the answer is it's because when they came out of captivity in Babylon, they adopted some of the Babylonian civil customs and one of the customs was that the New Year was celebrated in the fall. Now, up north we actually have seasons. I know you have seasons here in Georgia. I live in South Florida. We only have two seasons. We have very hot and reasonably hot. But, Up north, I remember one particularly really bad winter uh, that I couldn't wait till the spring came and some of the early blooming flowers would literally come through the snow and then you would see a robin redbreast hopping around and you knew that things were going to start all over again and it was a wonderful way to celebrate actually like new beginnings so you could see why biblically why God would have the new year in the spring But traditionally, Jewish people celebrate this Feast of Trumpets as the Jewish New Year. And one of the main ceremonies is the blast of the ram's horn, the sounding of the shofar. So that's where the connection is. But we're going to look now at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you haven't already turned to it. And we're going to look at this kind of verse by verse so you get a sense of what Paul was saying here and what we ought to do with it as believers. Beginning in verse 13, Paul writes this. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, some versions would say, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. What is Paul saying here? He's not saying that Christians shouldn't grieve. And that's a a common misunderstanding here. Uh, As a pastor, and I'm sure Pastor Mike has had this experience, you officiate at a funeral, and and a Christian's funeral is a celebration. Yes? It's a home going, a graduation. And so there's a lot of joy and celebration uh, associated with a Christian's funeral. But for the family, there's a void, That's real. In spite of the fact that you're thankful that your loved one is with the Lord, you're going to miss that loved one. My mom died three months ago. She was 90 years old, and she was a believer. And her last couple of years were pretty awful. And so it was a joy that she went home to be with the Lord. And we had a wonderful memorial service celebrating that. But... Every day that we drive to our office, we pass the nursing home that she was in. And I have to be honest with you, I'm still getting a feeling in the pit of my stomach that's part of the grieving process. So if you've lost a loved one, please understand, Paul is not saying don't grieve. Grieving is part of moving on in your life. It's part of the process, and Christians should grieve. But notice what Paul says, not like those who have no hope. See, the grieving is very, very clearly changed when you realize you're going to see your loved one again. As a Jewish man, I have to tell you, I've been to way too many funerals of people who died without Jesus. And it's awful. And it's hopeless. And that's what Paul's talking about. By all means grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Okay, everybody tracking with me? Let's move on. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, how many of you believe that? If you didn't raise your hand, please see Pastor Mike after service. <laughs> if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we believe in, has happened. That's part of our faith. But just as we believe that, we also need to believe in his sure return for us. This event is going to happen just as sure. And so as you look towards it, as you understand what Jesus did when he died and rose again, uh, please understand that he's going to return. That's what Paul is saying. And this picture is a wonderful picture of the ancient Jewish wedding. Because in the ancient Jewish wedding, the bridegroom, after all the legalities of marriage took place, all the contracts were signed, would go away and prepare a place for his bride. And only when the place was ready would he come back and the celebration begin. And so this is a picture of the bridegroom going away and preparing a place for the bride. And Jesus in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. And when it's ready, I will return for you. And so we look forward to his coming. And notice, as Paul writes this, there's an emphasis on the fact that this will happen for those who have fallen asleep, for the dead and Messiah, those who've died as believers. Now let's go to the actual event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest interceding for us. He's in a lofty position that one day the Father is going to say to the Son, Son, it's time, and he's going to leave that lofty position and descend from heaven. Now, this is not the second coming because you'll see that he never gets to the ground. We meet the Lord in the air. As our brother sang, his feet won't even be on the ground anymore. So we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and he's going to descend from heaven. Now, to see this in reverse, uh, just turn to Acts chapter 1 for a moment. Acts chapter 1 follows Jesus' final marching orders to his followers. This is Luke's account of Jesus' final words where Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. And he mentions four places. Remember the four places. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what Jesus was telling his Jewish followers, this is primarily Jewish followers that the risen Jesus was speaking to, that the gospel would not only continue to go to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, but even to the Samaritans, who the traditional Jews despised. They actually despised each other because they didn't get along. The Samaritans were half Assyrian and half Hebrew and developed their own brand of Judaism, which only included the five books of Moses, and they didn't believe that God was worshipped in Jerusalem, but rather on another place called Mount Gerizim. So they didn't get along. So what's Jesus telling us? He's telling us we need to bring the gospel message even to people we don't like. Think about that. Think about conversation you'll have with the Lord. But Lord, if I share the gospel with that person, I may have to spend eternity with them. And so he wants us to share with everybody. And then, this is the mind-boggling part, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to listen carefully what Jesus is telling these Jewish followers. I want you to bring the message even to the Gentiles, the nations. Now, how many of you are Gentile? If you're not sure, you are. And so, what's Jesus saying? The gospel continues to go to the Jews. It's a Jewish message about a Jewish Messiah who became the Savior of the world, but it doesn't stop there. It goes all the way to the nations. Are you glad that the gospel came to the nations? Amen. And so, when he finished saying that, it says after after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. Now, I take that to mean that he spoke to them and then physically, bodily rose up into the sky. Have any of you ever had an experience with a helium balloon and a small child? Where <laughs> your, your little child is holding on to the balloon and what does he or she do? He lets it go. And what did the two of you do? You watch it <laughs> till you can't see it anymore. That's exactly what's going on here. They're watching Jesus ascend into the clouds. And they're amazed. And so look what happens. It says, he was lifted up while they were looking on A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, obviously angels, stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now, excuse me, but I'm a cynical New Yorker. Does anybody else not think this is a silly question? Why are you looking up into the sky? Well, Jesus just disappeared into the clouds. But notice what they're telling us, what what the angels are telling us. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So just as he ascended into the clouds, he's going to descend into the clouds. That's where Jesus descends. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven into the clouds, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So these are three sounds associated with his coming, and they're going to happen, I take it, one, two, three, very quickly. The first sound is a shout. Is there anything in the Bible that can indicate what that shout is? And I think there is. It's found in John chapter 11. It's the greatest miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. The raising of of Lazarus from the dead. If you remember the story as Jesus delays after he gets word that Lazarus is sick and dying, instead of immediately going to them as the sisters expected him to do, he delayed and didn't show up until Lazarus was dead for four days. Now the significance of that isn't that Jesus didn't care. The significance of that is that the rabbis taught that the body and the soul remained connected for three days. And on the fourth day, after three days, the soul would go to be with God. And so it was believed that only the Messiah would be able to raise someone from the dead who would be dead at least four days. This was Jesus' way of telling the people that he truly was the promised Messiah. That's why he waited. But if you remember the story as the sisters were rebuking him for not coming sooner, he finally asked Martha where he was buried. And Martha, in her best King James English, said to the Lord, what? He stinketh. You don't want to go there. It's going to smell bad. And so... Jesus tells them to remove the stone and when, he removes the st- when they remove the stone he goes to the foot of the cave where the Lazarus is buried and it says that he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come forth and so the shout I believe is going to be that we are all going to hear our name called by Jesus himself. Now, I have to tell you, I've taught this at conferences and had people come up to ask me questions, and maybe some of you were thinking this. Someone asked me, won't that take a long time? It's a logical question. If we're talking about, Millions upon millions upon millions of believers from the time of the cross till whenever this event happens. And he's got to name them one by one by one. Yeah, that would take a long time if we did that. But God is God. The same God who created the universe by a spoken word can figure out a way for all of us to hear our names called all at the same time. So again, I believe you're going to hear your name called by Jesus. To whether you're alive or whether you've already passed, Jesus is going to call you to this event. The second sound, the voice of the archangel, is, I believe, a call of the commanding angels. The angels are organized like a military. And the archangels are the head angels. Michael is an archangel, probably Gabriel and others And they are going to call the lower angels to minister to everyone who's going to be involved in this event. And where I get that from is in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus, the poor beggar, dies as a believer, he goes to Abraham's bosom, to a place of comfort, and it's said he's ministered to by the angels. And so I believe that the archangels are going to tell the lower angels to minister to all those who are going to be involved in this event. And then the last sound, the trumpet of God. Now, in the traditional service, at the very end, there's a number of different blasts of the shofar. Some short, some longer, and they would be called out, and the person blowing the shofar would play these different blasts. The final blast is called a tekiah gadol, the great long blast of the ram's horn. It's a call to gathering. And if the one blowing the shofar knows what he's doing and has a strong set of lungs, it can last for a while. And it's an amazing, eerie sound, this call to gathering. So imagine yourself with a group of people who are not believers in Jesus maybe your workplace, maybe school, whatever it might be, and you're gathered together, maybe you're having lunch together, and all of a sudden you get startled because you hear that shout, Jesus calling your name. And it kind of makes you sit up. And you look at the people who haven't reacted at all, and you say to them, Have you, did you hear that? And they look at you and say, hear What? And then the voice of the archangel. Again, they're going to happen very quickly. You hear that? And now they're looking at you really funny. Hear what? And then the last sound, the long blast of the shofar, the ram's horn. And you say, come on, you had to have heard that. And you're gone. You disappear. What on earth are they going to say? Well, I was online in Florida. We have Publix. Do you have Publix supermarket here? I was online in Publix by the cashier where all those great newspapers are. And while I was waiting online, there was the National Enquirer, and on the front cover, was a flying saucer, and next to the flying saucer was this kind of elongated ET character, you know, with a big head and long skinny body, and and next to elongated ET was Elvis, (laughs) President Kennedy, and Michael Jackson. Interesting combination. And I thought, there's the answer. Space aliens came and took away all those nasty intolerant Christians who would not allow the utopia that they wanted to bring in to happen. Space aliens. I was going to say, see if I'm right, but none of you are going to be there, so we don't have to worry. The first time I heard this talk, I thought, i got to tell my family. This is life-changing. I was so excited that Jesus was going to come and I was going to be caught up to be with him in the clouds. And so I had lunch with my sister, my only sibling, who was a few years younger than me. And I was her big brother that she always looked up to. And so, and she's Jewish, and to this day does not believe in Jesus. And I said to her, Her name is Jackie. I said, Jackie, I want you to know something that's very important. If one day everybody that believes the way I do, that Jesus is the Messiah, all disappear at the same time, I want you to understand something very important. It wasn't space aliens who took us away. It was Jesus. Please promise me you won't forget that. And her eyeballs got real wide. And I could see in my sister's face that she knew that her big brother had lost his mind. And maybe you're thinking if I tell my family that, they're going to think I'm crazy. Well, I got news for you. If you're living for Jesus, they already do think you're crazy. So, and again, to this day, she doesn't believe. But if this event happens in our lifetime, I hope she remembers that conversation we had. So let's look at the rest of this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And notice this, the dead in Christ will rise first. So everybody who died in Christ since the cross, everybody who died in Christ, we'll rise up and receive a new resurrected body. Now, what's that resurrected body going to look like? The Bible doesn't really say except for this. Jesus is called the first fruits of the dead. So, we can look to Jesus' resurrection to get a sense of what we might like. He had flesh, he had bone, he had a meal with his disciples, and he could appear in a locked room instantaneously, just like that. It's going to be cooler than Star Trek, I promise you. (laughs) But what are we going to look like? That's the question. Are we going to look like we did when we died? Is my mom going to be a 90-year-old woman for eternity? I don't think so. And if God forbid children died, are they going to remain children? It seems like if Jesus was 33 years old when he was resurrected, then maybe we'll all look like we're about that age. That's what some Bible scholars think. And I don't know about you, but 33 sounds really, really good. (laughs) We just don't know. It's all speculation. But it's going to happen to the dead in Christ first. And again, just to throw this out, that means everybody from the time of the cross going forward, which means that John the Baptist is not resurrected at this point. John the Baptist is an Old Testament saint. He died under the Old Testament dispensation. Looking forward to the cross. But he wasn't part of that. They'll they'll get resurrected later on. And so the dead in Christ will rise up. Then listen to Paul's wording. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, where? In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so, the dead in Christ rise up first, receive new resurrected bodies. No matter where they are, they're going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Now here's some more questions that usually come up. What happens if there's, they were cremated and there's no DNA left? What about people who died on 9-11 and were basically vaporized? They never found anything of remains. What about someone lost at sea and they basically became fish food? Well, the answer is, God doesn't need DNA to resurrect someone. Again, this is, we're talking about the God who created the universe by a spoken word. And maybe you believe in the Big Bang Theory, I believe in the Big Banger. God spoke a word and the universe came into existence. And so, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. No, notice how Paul states that. He states that like he believed that he was going to be part of this. And again, being the cynical New Yorker that I am, it's easy to look at Paul and say, Paul, you miscalculated a little bit. It's almost 2,000 years since you wrote this, and it still hasn't happened yet. But I don't believe that that was Paul's necessarily his intent. I believe he wanted to teach us something very important. And it's something called the doctrine of imminency. It's a belief that we don't have to wait for things to happen before Jesus returns. It could happen at any moment, on, at any day. And we need to wake up every morning believing that this might be the day that Jesus will return. And that will change the way you live. Because if you believe that things have to happen first such as the rebuilding of the temple, a seven year treaty signed by a political leader in Israel and her neighbors, then if those things haven't happened then you can sit on your hands and say, well I don't really need to be worrying about these things, they haven't happened yet. But if you believe that Jesus could come at any moment then like the Song that says, people get ready, Jesus is coming, we need to be ready. And that's what Paul is trying to teach us here. So now, one of the things that I I need to let you know is that a lot of Christians don't believe that this is an actual event. They believe this is all part of the second coming. And one of the arguments that often is put forward is the fact that There's no English word rapture in the English translation of the Bible. Now, how many of you believe in Calvary? You won't find it in the Bible. Calvary is the English transliteration of the Latin word Calvarius, which is a translation of the Hebrew Golgotha, the place of the skull. Rapture is the English transliteration of the Latin word rapturo, which means the catching up. So that phrase translated here, we will be caught up, that's where the word rapture comes from. It's the catching up of believers to be with the Lord. And it says, here's the good news, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So turn to the person next to you and tell them we will always be with the Lord. Paul writes this, the whole reason for writing this paragraph. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is intended to be an encouragement, a comfort for all believers, that no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult life is right now, there truly is light at the end of the tunnel. That Jesus is coming again, and we are one day going to be with him. And if you're a believer in Jesus, it doesn't get any better than that. So I want to encourage you to think about that. If this event happens tonight, will I be one of those who gets caught up to be with the Lord in the air? If you can't say for sure that you know that, then I want you to really think hard and long about what you might need to do to make sure that's the case because this is for those who are in Christ, those who are in the Messiah, those who've accepted what Jesus did. So in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that, to ask Jesus into your heart. If you are thinking, maybe I'm not going to be part of this, you don't want to be left behind. Before we go on, I I just want to share a little bit about the ministry for one minute. You should have received one of these brochures, Can you take it out just for a minute? Hold it up. Let me see that you got it. If you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll get it to you. You only need one per family. Okay, raise your hands. While people are raising their hands, let me just tell you in the back we have a uh, book table and I just want to make mention of Some of our resources at the table. Uh, This this is a brand new book called What Should We Think About Israel, written by Randall Price, who is a a wonderful archaeologist and